people are stupid. Live to tape. Welcome to Millennial Season 4, Episode 12. I'm Andrew. I'm Elisa. And I'm Laura. And we are joined by one of our friends this week. Welcome back to the show, Pamela. Hi. Sounds so Pam. formal. Hello. Hailing Thank you for from being here. California. Yeah, thanks and welcome back. Of course. It's always a good time hanging out with you guys. How's life in California? Same old, same old. Um, California is just California. I'm not in San Francisco currently. I'm out in LA. And having spent some time on the East Coast, like I drove down this time and it's like, oh my God, I'm still in California and it's like eight hours later and I haven't like moved (laughs) states. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. It's quite a big state. Um, How do you like LA? LA is a clusterfuck, as always. I forgot how bad the traffic (laughs) is, honestly, and it's been raining this week. So that means people are more ridiculous than usual on the road. And it's been taking me twice as long to get literally anywhere. Yeah. (laughs) There is something I I remember. I remember going to California for the very first time. It was to Los Angeles to visit um, Andrew and Matt, actually. And... It it was like a light drizzle. I mean, I didn't even need an umbrella. And people were freaking the fuck out over it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Hunker down, you know, ration out your food because you're not moving. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Have you run into Matt? What are you hanging out with him? I assume that's why you're down. there. Yeah, I've uh, tied him up in the closet and I've taken <laughs> over his spot. So, oh, <laughs> I mean, I think he's into that. I I knew it as soon as I walked. That's why there was no struggle. I should have known. Yeah. (laughs) When when I was still living in LA, like you and I would hang out maybe once (laughs) per 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 visit of yours down to LA, but like you never really hung out with Matt, right? Like a long, long time ago. There was actually a really a while where I would come out and I would only see Matt because you wouldn't be here. So it's like we were never friends. To be honest, I, I can say this now that time has passed. I was just avoiding you. That's all I, it was. I knew it. All of this time, our relationship has been a sham. I should have known better. <laughs> That's okay, no. Pam. That's what his relationship is like with us, too. <laughs> he uses us for podcast gain and throws us actually, away. Actually, I was... Actually, it's funny you mentioned that, Laura, because I'm going to be driving through Atlanta in like a week or 10 days from now. And I was like, I don't like. Am I gonna have time to hang out with Laura? And like, that's a whole day thing. I it just, yeah, it might see. be too much. Yeah, you know. And I feel terrible saying it, but I'm like, oh, he's probably coming during the week. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna have to like work all day and then go hang out with him, <laughs> pretend to care. <laughs> I've right. to ask him about his life and right. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. Too much effort. Too much effort. Uh, I'll, I'll let you know what day I'm coming through, Laura. And if we we're up for it, then we can do it. If not, no big yeah. deal. Yeah, we'll see if I can uh, mash down my apathy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm I'm kidding, kind of. Yeah, me too, kind of. <laughs> I was in New York last week at the at uh, when we recorded last week's episode. Um, I had just gotten there, 
And uh, so the rest of the trip happened after we recorded. I saw uh, Springsteen again because, you know, I'm obsessed and I had to see that again. I also saw Frozen on Broadway. It, it just officially opened up last week and it was surprisingly good. Did you guys like the movie, movie version? Never saw it. What? So, yeah. Huh. The third show I saw was Rocktopia. Elisa. It's only on Broadway for six weeks, and it's a mashup of classic rock covers, but like really good covers by Broadway, Broadway's elite. Like this isn't like cheap cover bands. These are like people with amazing vocal power delivering these songs. It was pretty amazing. But the, but the twist was that it was both classic rock songs and classical compositions oh no <laughs> i knew it i knew you're gonna go there why because that's like my favorite mashup <laughs> serious i know i'm being i mean dead serious there are a few there are a few bands that that sort of specialize in like the the metal classical thing mm. i think i could talk about this for fucking hours if you like study the history of music there's like a very clear linear correlation between classical music and how that progressed into like blues and jazz and funk yeah. and then rock and then metal and it's like it's it's i love it i, I yeah. love it oh you would have loved this show then it was i, I was thinking of you during it um, oh my god weirdly so we had just happened to pass it on the street my friend richard and i and he's in the classic rock too and he was like super into it and I was like, all right, since I'm dragging you to Frozen, you can drag me to Rocktopia. And I ended up really liking it. And the weird twist on it was that fucking Pat Monahan from Train was a part wow. of the show. And he was doing the Led Zeppelin songs. Oh, the vocals. good Lord. But, you know, the weird, it was jarring at first, but he's surprisingly good. <laughs> I, I have to, I'd have to see that to believe that. Yeah. I understand. But that but, sounds really cool. I can't believe yeah. that exists and I hadn't heard of that. That's like, God, yeah. so up my alley. So so it was like on a nationwide tour. Now it's only on Broadway for like six weeks. I don't know what's happening to it after. But um, keep an eye out for Rocktopia. If you, if you, Elise, or anyone else sees it roll through a town near you. But I was, I was, so before New York, I had my family here. And you know what that requires. Alcohol. Right. So between a week of the family being here and then a week in New York, I, I've been drinking every night for the past two, two and a half weeks. And tonight's the first night I'm not drinking and it feels good and it feels cleansing, but it, it's hard to do. Like, to just stop. Do you ever... Does anyone else ever experience that when they're, like, drinking for so many days in a row and then a night comes and you're like, all right, I'm not going to drink. And then it's really difficult. Um, no. I, I understand this sounds like I'm an alcoholic, but... Yeah. It just, <laughs> it just, yeah, it does. It's hard to switch off. I'm actually a little bit of the opposite. If I've been drinking several nights in a row, I can't wait to stop because my body is just telling me to take a break. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I need a timeout. Yeah, I I crash. Well, and I, I have felt especially shit about drinking nightly recently because I went to a doctor recently, a, a new doctor, 
and um, she was doing like the initial checkup. How often do you smoke? Do you do any drugs? And then, of course, the alcohol question. And I said, oh, yeah, I, uh, on the weekends. And she's like, every weekend? I'm like, yeah, Friday and Saturday, like three, four beers. And she's like, oh, oh, you have to stop. That's too much. I'm like, what the what? fuck? <laughs> she's an old, she was an older doctor. And like, that was just, that really turned me off. Like, <laughs> don't tell me how much I can drink. But like a couple drinks, two nights a week doesn't seem that bad to me. But to her, she was like, no, you need to do one drink one night a week. I'm like, oh, fuck that. Did she tell you you have, like, liver problems or something? Right. (laughs) No. But she was like, you know, later on down the road, you might, if you keep up that But anything can happen later on down the road. (sighs) We'll find out. Yeah, we will find out. That's so bizarre to me. I mean, I could see her saying that if you were like, yeah, I go out every Friday and Saturday night and have, like, 12 beers. Then I could see her being like, oh, you might want to tone that down. But I mean... Yeah. Between those two nights, you're probably not even having enough to qualify as one drink per night of the week. You know what yeah, I mean? Right. And then, you know, she didn't ask me about this, but I was like, but I do work out like pretty much every day because I have nothing better to do. She's like, oh, yeah, but you should still you still need to turn down the drinking. I'm like, all right, fuck this. I'm out of here. Don't go to that doctor again. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, I never got my STD test done, so. Who knows oh. what the status is? You no. might, you might want to do that. Playing Russian roulette over there, aren't you? You know who else could use an STD test? And I say this lovingly, Stormy Daniels. Um, <laughs> <laughs> on the last episode, I had mentioned that she was uh, going to be doing an interview with sixty Minutes with Anderson Cooper from CNN. And the interview has now taken place. We're recording on Monday night. It occurred on uh, Sunday, March 25th. It was a ratings bonanza. It was the most watched episode of 60 Minutes since President Barack Obama had his first post-election sit-down in 2008. Wow. It's been a decade. 21.3 million people tuned in to watch Anderson Cooper talk to Stormy Daniels about spanking Donald Trump. Wow. Elisa, you watched it, right? I did watch it. And I had, God, such mixed feelings about it. I think the big takeaways are this. Number one, uh, apparently Stormy Daniels only had sex allegedly with Donald Trump one time. We keep using this word affair, and to me that, at least to me, that sort of implies that there was something ongoing, but by her own admission, she only had sex with Donald Trump once. Uh, she said she was asked explicitly if she was attracted to him, and she said no. And then Anderson Cooper asked, did you even want to have sex with him? And she said no. <laughs> um, and she was very clear, however, that it was consensual. She just wasn't particularly emotionally or physically into it. Um, that I thought was a little surprising. I expected this to be like a full-fledged affair where, you know, they kept seeing each other over and over and over again. And apparently it wasn't. Um, but... Other than that, I, I, I don't know. I kind of felt like because of that, it was a little bit of a letdown. Like all we really learned from it was that it happened one time. And it seemed to me that the bigger story was her accusation that she had been threatened. 
She did go into some detail about how someone associated with the Trump organization, according to her, threatened her and her family, I think, um, saying, you know, if you know what's good for you, basically, you'll leave you'll leave Mr. Trump alone. Um, That was a revelation. I'll admit. Yeah. yeah, She said she was going into a gym with her daughter, her young daughter. And that's when the person came up and threatened her. I think also the potential um, violation of campaign finance law is an important thing to bring up here. I know, Elisa, I think you brought that up as a possibility last week, but the 60 Minutes interview did do a really good job of digging into that a little more and talking about why uh, Trump's lawyer, Cohen, who claims that he made this $130,000 payment on Trump's behalf, why that is a violation, because it exceeds his own personal uh, limit for donating to the campaign. And even though this wasn't actually campaign money, it was something that was done in favor of the candidate. So it might as well have been. Um, and on top of that, because because of that question floating around out there, um, it potentially gives Robert Mueller more to dig into when looking at uh, Cohen, just because he had already been investigating him over uh, some of his activities in Moscow in 2016, shortly before the election. So uh, there's there's like a whole legal Pandora's box that if it hasn't been opened yet, it probably is going to be open very soon. So that was another big takeaway. The biggest takeaway I saw was this comment about spanking Donald Trump with a copy of Time, Ma- Time magazine that had his face on it. I want to play that clip from the interview. <laughs> so I was like, does this, does this normally work for you? And he looked very taken. Him take it back like he didn't really understand what I was saying. Like I was just, you know, talking about yourself normally work. And I was like, someone should take that magazine and spank you with it. And I'll never forget the look on his face. And he was what, like, what was look? Just, I don't think anyone's ever spoken to him like that, especially, you know, a young woman who looked like me. And I said, you know, give me that. And he, I turned around going, you wouldn't. Hand it over. And uh, so he did. And I was like, Turn around, drop him. You told Donald Trump to turn around and take off his pants? Yes. And did he? Yes. So he turned around and pulled his pants down a little. You know, he had underwear on and stuff, and, and I just gave him a couple swats. What cracks me up about that is Anderson going, You told him to turn around and drop his pants. <laughs> like all news, Manny. <laughs> Anderson's face throughout this entire thing gave me life. Yeah. It, it looked it like was he was like, holding in a poop slash a laugh. <laughs> yeah, it was like simultaneous horror and curiosity. Yeah, you told <laughs> you told <laughs> you told Mister Trump to pull his pants down. <laughs> anyway, it's just a it's a surreal interview to watch because I feel like for I feel like it's become so normal and commonplace to hear this story and stories like them. But every now and then, I try and step back and remind myself, what would the country be saying? How would we be reacting if this were any other president? Any other president. And that's when it gets really surreal and hard to believe. And you kind of feel like you're living in the twilight zone. Yeah. I think especially, too, because we've seen, like, 
careers end over less than this, you know, uh, for things that like actually have been ongoing affairs, like you were saying earlier. So it is kind of interesting to watch the excuses that are made. Like if it's not just flat out denial that she's a liar, then like the excuses, the excuses people make to feel better about supporting Donald Trump as somebody that's in a very large position of power. Yeah. Well, I think that is one of the interesting things about this. Nobody has been crying fake news. Donald Trump only alluded to the story on Monday morning when he tweeted out that there's there's never been more fake news out there. He didn't name Stormy Daniels, but uh, there's court documents showing that this hush money was transferred, that Trump was involved here. So it's hard to deny. And um, this is like one scandal with Donald Trump that you can you can say absolutely happened. And the Russia thing, it's still kind of behind smoke and mirrors, if there's anything there. This, there's there's documents proving it. Anyway. Well, speaking of sex, hmm. I wanted to start the news off with uh, uh, something a little lighter. The Journal of Sex Research has just published a new comprehensive study outlining the reasons why long-term monogamous couples eventually experience challenges to their sex life. They said that it's in the upwards of 93% of long-term couples, past, once you've been together more than seven years, report that they've had challenges to their sex life. So it's basically everyone at a certain point. Um, the way that they did this was four different researchers from the Journal of Sex Research sat down and reviewed and collected data from 64 other peer-reviewed articles. Um, so it's pretty much an amalgamation of 64 other peer-reviewed articles from this journal. And they kind of sat down and looked at those 64 articles and said, okay, what is, what are the overarching themes here? Um, and they said there, they said there are a few different reasons for, for why couples tend to experience problems with their sex lives. And I thought this was interesting because all of us either are or have been at some point in our, in our lives in, in, a, in a long-term relationship. And we've talked a lot about that before. And I found this just fascinating in the context of, of those conversations we've had before. One of the big things they said, pretty much the number one reason, that sex lives tend to suffer long-term is because people stop taking care of themselves. And it's actually not that you start to find your partner unattractive. That's not why it hurts your sex life. It's that you start to find yourself unattractive. And when you lose confidence in yourself, you're less inclined to have sex. You know, if you, over the course of, they said, you know, past seven years, that's when it starts to really get difficult. If you've been with someone, let's say for eight years, and over the course of those eight years, you've stopped taking care of yourself in one form or fashion, I can understand why you're not going to want to strip naked and, and have sex if you feel terrible about yourself. So that was actually the number one reason that was reported. Uh, second reason um, a failure to manage stress levels. So over time, when you move in together, you have a mortgage, or if you ever have kids, you start to get really stressed out by life. And stress is just a sex killer. And failure to manage stress and to cut things out of your life that you don't need and they're causing you undue stress is another huge reason why couples stop having sex. Uh, number three, couples fail to maintain autonomy. 
So their advice was don't be, don't be attached to your partner at the hip. Force yourself if you have to, to get time away from them. Even if you're in that lovesick puppy phase where you want to see them all the time, that's a good thing. Make yourself lovesick. Go through those days and those nights where you miss your partner. Because while it might feel bad to you in the moment, what you're actually doing is fostering a sense of need and attractiveness. That way, when you meet up with them, it's like this rush of adrenaline, like, oh, God, I haven't seen you in so long. I've missed you so much. If you never get that time apart from each other, or if you rarely get that time apart from each other, you never get that adrenaline rush. And they're saying that couples, particularly who see each other often, who live nearby or who live together in the same place, need to make sure that they take trips away. Like, get away for the weekend. Go with your girlfriends. Go visit home and don't bring your partner. Um, something else they said, embrace novelty. Uh, couples tend to sort of fall into a cycle of doing the same old thing all the time, and that kills the sex life. And they talked – actually, specifically, I thought this was a little weird and surprising. One of their big recommendations was don't be afraid to flirt and allow your partner to flirt harmlessly with strangers. Not with people you know. They said not with people you know because then that can get into weird emotional territory. But if you're out at a bar and like, you know, whatever, and if it's just non-physical verbal flirting, that apparently that, that <laughs> apparently that works and that's like a thing that people, like couples can try. Is it because it, it makes your partner jealous? Like, oh my God, Bay's talking to some random over there and they seem to be enjoying each other's company. Fuck that. I'm going to go fuck the hell out of them tonight. <laughs> yeah, maybe it is. You know, it's weird because they didn't actually go into the psychology behind why this works. Just that they said that monogamous couples tend to be very, very protective of their partner. And that protectiveness often translates into a sense of security, which while very good and positive, I think can lead to a sense of, taking it for granted. Does that make sense? So if you take it yeah. for granted that they're always going to be there and like they're not they're not even attracted to anyone else, that's not realistic, right? No matter how much you love someone, it's not realistic to think that you're not attracted to any other human. That's just that's stupid. And right. so I th- I don't know, they didn't go into the psychology behind it, but that's my guess. Um and like the last couple of things they said were some obvious ones like tell your partner what you're attracted to even if it's something really stupid and small so something that I thought of for myself I'm very attracted to like button up shirts with like the sleeves rolled up to the elbows mm. I think that's like a really hot look and it it totally works like when I told my boyfriend that when we first started dating and he adopted that look and it was like my sex drive went from like my sex drive went from like a hundred to two hundred in like the span of like the thirty seconds it took him to put on the shirt. Damn it, Elisa, we're like the same fucking person. Really? Yes. I have the same thing. I think that I find that very, very attractive. I think that's a girl thing though, because I am in that boat and I know like a lot of my friends are too. I I I like that as well, <laughs> but because of the forearms. Thank like, I like you. The yes. Forearms. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Yeah. I, yeah. So I th- they were saying in this in this new study, tell your partner that a lot of times couples, particularly over time, 
stop communicating on about those things and our preferences change and i think that's true i mean five years ago i didn't give a shit what kind of shirt someone wore but five years but but you know fast forward five years and my preferences could change and their advice was don't stop communicating that you know if you wake up five years from now and suddenly you find tutus really fucking hot tell your partner that tell them that yeah. Um, don't, you're not going to stay the same person you're supposed to evolve throughout your life. And so are your sexual interests and don't stop communicating that to your partner. Uh, yeah. So those were the major ones. Those were the big takeaways. I thought some of them were really obvious, but other ones like the flirting with other people thing I thought was really out there. Yeah. You know, I actually know a gay couple. They've been together for years, like right after they came out, they both came out, they got together they um th- so it's it's been i don't know seven ish years or so and one of them has never had any other boyfriends so I, I i'm more friendly with the other guy i'm only friendly with the other guy and he was telling me that he lets his boyfriend flirt and he's okay with it because it gives him the opportunity to experience other people He's never had that opportunity mm. opportunity to experience others before. So that might be a reason as well that let your partner verbally flirt with others. If if you're letting them kind of have some fun, experience the single life for a little bit at the bar for an hour, it's fine. It's harmless as long as they don't go falling in love. But so I get it from a couple different perspectives. I also think it's interesting that like it's I think nowadays it's not taboo to think about open open relationships because I know a couple that um like it's kind of a similar thing except she's a lot older and this is his first serious relationship and so now they've entered an open relationship where it's like very very loose. It's not necessarily just flirting. She's just like, yeah, I think that you need to go experience other people. But I do think that, you know, even like five, 10 years ago, that wasn't something that was normal. Because I also have a friend that married her high school sweetheart, you know, like two years ago. But before they got married, they broke up so that they could experience other people because, you know, they graduated together, they went to the same college together, they graduated from that together. And it was just like, they just needed to make sure that that was the right fit. But I do think it's interesting that we've come to a point where like holding on but letting go a little bit is okay whereas that wouldn't have been okay you know just a few years ago Mm -hmm. right yeah i agree and i think what this ultimately comes down to is establishing that you're secure in your relationship Mm -hmm. if your significant other going to a bar for an hour and harmlessly flirting is what tanks your relationship then you probably shouldn't have been in that relationship to begin with. I think one of the the patterns that I see in some of this research really is you have to take care of yourself if you're going to be able to take care of your relationship. So the first piece of advice that they said was feel attractive and that one the number one reason that couples stop having sex is because they stop feeling good about themselves. Um, that really, that really resonated with me. I think of all of the pieces of advice, some of them didn't really hit home with me. Others did, but that one really, really did because I've noticed that, you know, when you're first dating somebody, the first six months, you go out of your way to like 
get dressed up and like look nice for them. And there's all that excitement surrounding the dates and what have you. And as more and more time progresses, you fall into, you fall, you, you get comfortable with them. And don't get me wrong. That's wonderful. I think that's a wonderful dynamic. And that's one of the great things of being in a long-term relationship. But sometimes it can go too far where you stop taking care of yourself and like you gain weight, you stop getting your hair cut, you just dress like in fucking slovenly clothes all the time. And while there's nothing inherently wrong with that, it does hurt your own self-confidence. And I've experienced that. So I think one of the number one takeaways from this research to me was you have to take care of yourself. And it's not selfish to do so. You're actually helping your relationship by doing so. Yeah. And I think that including the other person in that, even in little ways, is really helpful. Like, I went through that phase in my current relationship where like early on, there was that excitement about getting ready and looking my best. And, you know, it was it was super early on. So like, I didn't want my boyfriend to see me without makeup yet, you know, that kind of stuff. But of course, as time has gone on, we're way more comfortable with that. And I feel like I'm more often not wearing makeup in front of him than when I do. But when I do, I'll do little things like come out with my eyeshadow palette and be like, hey, uh, I need your help. Can you pick out a dark color, a medium color and a light color? So he's like kind of involved in that process. And then I can go do it. And he'll be like, oh, that came out really cool. You know, and so it's just like a different way for us to bond, but also for me to feel attractive. Yeah, that's cute. When uh, I tend to be introverted, so when I can let somebody into my world, so to speak, uh, I know that they're a good person. Because a lot of time I I like my alone time. I like just sitting back and maybe playing a video game or just watching something stupid on television. And if I can share that with somebody and not have to like go out of my way to do extra things, that person will like naturally fit into my existing life and vice versa, then that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I also think um, I was just gonna say really quickly, it's important to know, like, remember to validate your partner. Like if you're always the one getting validation, you know, um, like, oh, you look nice yeah. today. Like, we're, it, and I think it's like, sometimes it's harder for girls to be instigators. Um, but that's really important, too, because like your boyfriend or girlfriend want to know that you're attracted to them and that you think yes. that they look good and stuff like that. So just like, yes, making sure that those compliments are going both ways is really important. Totally I agree. agree. Totally mm-hmm. agree. Yeah. Pam, Laura, Elisa, I find all of you attractive. I've been Aww. trying to hop on that, Andrew, for a good 10 years. Yeah. So. <laughs> More than 10 years at this point. Too little, Shit. too late. Yeah. <sighs> I tried. I know. Laura, Laura, Laura <laughs> fucking A for effort, girl. Laura tried. Then she cried. And then, you know, certain revelations were made. <laughs> Uh, anyway, let's talk about some <laughs> other news. Um, this has been a, a big story, arguably one of the biggest stories in the world right now. Um, this scandal regarding Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. I'll, I'll briefly catch everybody up. Cambridge Analytica is a political consulting firm, and they were found to have collected the data of 50 million Facebook users. The thing was, only 270,000 of those people had agreed to hand over their data when they connected their Facebook account to a quiz. Um, What this 
app did was not only did it pull these 270,000 people's data, but it also pulled their friends' data. So that's why this multiplied so quickly up to 50 million Facebook users. This data was used by the Trump campaign to influence the behavior of users by having a good sense of who these people were. And by doing so, they could run advertising that would appeal to them to manipulate them into voting for Trump or to make sure they turn out to the polls. Uh, For example, the Trump campaign having all this data could perfectly target coal-loving people. People who say maybe liked pages about coal or wrote about coal. We need coal. Save coal. Or similarly, maybe if these people liked anti-Hillary pages on Facebook, they could target them specifically. They had, from what I'm understanding, uh, Cambridge had every all of our data. Posts, friend lists, photos, personal info, the things you've liked. So they knew exactly who you are. Um the data was sold to uh, Cambridge Analytica, which is against this Facebook's policy of collecting data. Uh, Facebook has admitted, and it had been known, that um, there are these groups of data that can be studied, um, but Facebook has never permitted the data to be sold. Um, the U.S. and the U.K., and I think a couple other countries are looking into whether Facebook's violated any laws here. And, of course, they're looking into Cambridge Analytica as well. Uh, Facebook and founder Mark Zuckerberg have apologized profusely. Uh, the stock has taken a bit of a hit. hit. I think uh, Zuckerberg has personally lost a lot of money because of how how far the stock has dropped. Um, but this has also brought up a discussion about what we do online and our privacy online. This is the price that we pay for free services like Facebook and Google. In exchange for using their services for free, they have to make money. So we agree when we sign up to see advertisements that they think will appeal to us based on our data. And we all know those types of ads. You go on Amazon and you search for certain types of products and then suddenly you're seeing those same, same products in your Facebook feed. Or in your Gmail, or in your always, Google s- search results, hmm? which is always very creepy. By the way, that happens to me all the time. It's very creepy. Yeah, but we're all just sort of used to it now, aren't we? That's just we how these places work. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm glad that you brought that up, Andrew, because I do have to say it's it should be well known at this point that if you are not paying for a product, then you are the product, and your you your profile your data is being sold. And that's how they make their money. And that is the non-monetary price that we all pay for using a free service. And I think that you're right. I think that to some extent, none of us should be terribly um, shocked or galled by this because I think that's a little disingenuous. I think that we would kind of lie into ourselves if we said, oh, my goodness, my stars, I had no idea that anything like this was happening like, yeah, but you kind of did because that's the entire, those are the whole terms and conditions of a, a service like Facebook. That being said, I think the actually galling part of this is that while we should know and we should understand that our data is going to be used and sold, that doesn't necessarily mean that we should know and accept that it's going to be used and sold for political purposes. 
you know, I think we've all understood, like Andrew was saying, that it's going to be, our data is going to be used and sold. You know, if you want to sell me a fucking jacket, fine. If you're trying to get into my head to see, like, what my favorite television drama is at the moment, okay. But if you're trying to get into my head to affect my psychology and to impact the state of democracy in elections, that's a whole different can of worms. And that, I do think, is a legitimate problem and complaint. Oh, absolutely. Wasn't part of this research just looking at general moods of people who are really active on social media? So like they had a group of participants who they showed only really negative stories to, and then people that they showed really positive stories to, to like monitor the mental effects on these people. Mm -hmm. That's disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to say, the argument I've heard about this the most in, in defense of this is that, you know, it's really tough in today's day and age to convince anyone of anything. Everybody is so deeply ingrained in their own political silos that do we really think that some Facebook ads are having an impact on elections? Like you can confront, you know, a Democrat or Republican in person and try and convince them of an opposing viewpoint and they will not budge. What makes us think that an ad on Facebook is really having any impact? That's the argument I hear in defense of this. And to that, I would say, you're probably right. I don't necessarily know that the ads and whatever this data was being used for was changing anyone's minds. What I do think it probably succeeded in doing was the, was, was the enthusiasm gap convincing people to actually go out and vote and do something. So I don't know that that this was successful, that the data usage here was necessarily even trying to change anyone's opinion. I think what it was trying to do was convince people to act and to vote for people who normally wouldn't. I also yeah. think that it's like that affirmation culture is like, that's a really good point to make because that's also the reason why people don't like to stray from like, the news networks that give them, you know, coverage that makes them feel comfortable with the way that they're portraying their spin. You know, it's not things that we don't already know happen. Um, Anything that you consume in the media is going to have some kind of viewpoint. Um, But, you know, we as society, we just need to know that it's important to kind of pick out the facts and form our own opinions. But a lot of people don't want to do that. So, Um, having an ad that just affirms your point of view is just going to make you think like, see, I was right. Like, look, everybody says I'm right. And and I think that that goes a long way too, as far as, you know, influence, influencing people to rally behind uh, their thought processes, like you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's what was going on here. They were getting posts that say, Hillary is going to take away our coal. Hillary is going to take away our guns. Oh my God, I need to get out and vote so I can keep our Second Amendment alive or keep our coal alive. They were striking an emotion, reinforcing a feeling that you already had to make sure that you go out and vote. Um, does this make any of us want to delete Facebook? There was this whole delete Facebook hashtag. Um, we don't know how many people actually deleted their Facebooks. I know, um, who's that guy who runs Tesla? He, uh, Elon Musk, he was dared to delete the 
Facebook page for Tesla and another one of his companies, SpaceX, I believe. And he was like, okay. And he deleted it. Hundreds of thousands of people (laughs) no longer getting Tesla and SpaceX updates. But um, other than that, I haven't seen many high-profile departures from Facebook. Has this made any of us second-guess what we're doing on Facebook? Not really, to be honest. Andrew, you and I talked about this briefly a little bit earlier, but there's part of me that feels apathetic about this because I don't feel personally impacted based on the target demographic of people that this was geared towards. I'm guessing I was not one of them. Um, so it it leads me to believe that hopefully my Facebook presence has not encouraged me uh, to have a particular political leaning. Um, I suppose there is some echo chamber bias there because most of my friends are on the liberal side of things. So we can kind of get into a a cycle of regurgitating things that are going to make everyone happy to hear. Um, But overall, I don't think Facebook has that big of an impact on my day to day life. And it's my primary point of contact for a lot of my international friends. So even right. if I wanted to delete it, delete it, I couldn't. I think that's the problem. Facebook has us all addicted in a variety of ways. For some people, it might just be Facebook Messenger. Depending on that, do you chat with people? Um, for others, I know Laura, Elisa, and I, we use a private Facebook group to communicate with our listeners. I have another private Facebook group where that I use to communicate with the hypable writers. It's like it's so ingrained in our lives at this point that there's just no getting out. As much as I if it weren't for Facebook Messenger and these Facebook groups and then of course I have to make fucking Facebook posts on the on the brand pages, uh I'd probably be out. I would think about it. I think there's something nice about not knowing what's going on in people's lives unless you talk to them. Well, and Facebook as a medium is kind of outdated. You know, it's like, I mean, when you look at, I don't want to compare, I don't want to look exactly at what the Gen Z kids are doing, but like so many of the kids who are high school age now don't even have Facebook. It's like all about Mm. Instagram and -hmm. Snapchat and things like that. Um, and I feel like Facebook has turned into this echo chamber of politics. So it's not even serving what its initial purpose was. Um, and if I didn't need it to keep in touch with the people that I need to keep in touch with, I probably would have quit a long time ago. Yeah. All right. We have one more news story. But first, I want to tell you about this week's sponsor. They are Zip Recruiter. If you're hiring... Definitely check out ZipRecruiter. Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and just praying for the right people to see it. It's a big internet out there. It's hard to get noticed. But ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. Hypable is actually going to be searching for a particular type of candidate soon for graphic design, and we're going to use ZipRecruiter to find them. And why would I trust ZipRecruiter? One reason, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. That is so quick when you're trying to get stuff done. 
The right candidates are out there, and ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash millennial. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash millennial. Give it a try for free. I think you're going to like it. I've used it before. I love it. It really does streamline the whole process. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. One more news story today um, related to what, Lauren and Lisa, you uh, did over the weekend. Yeah. So the March for Our Lives rallies took place in 800 cities all over the world. Uh, I know Elisa and I were in our respective cities marching. Uh, Andrew and Pam, did you guys get to go or did you get a chance to spectate? I spectated uh, by watching watching it on TV. Okay, that counts. That's I spectated. I spectated via Twitter because I was on red carpet duty, <laughs> which is like the most LA response I could have ever given to you guys. <laughs> I couldn't make it to the red carpet because the stupid March for Our Lives rally got. I would have been. You know what? I would have been happy if that had been the case. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, I know. So Atlanta was fairly. Um, moderate in size compared to other large cities like DC. But I will say Atlanta is a blue city in a sea of red. Uh, We are a very gun friendly state. We have open carry laws. We have campus carry laws. And we had 30,000 people turn out for the march in Atlanta and no counter protesters. Wow. I was very impressed. How was DC, Elisa? Oh, it was incredible. Um, The... (sighs) It was it was so packed that you really couldn't even if you showed up pretty much after like nine or ten a.m. You really couldn't even get up front to anywhere near where the stage was. Thankfully, they had a ton of jumbotrons all around the city. I think the most incredible part of it, apart from the the students who spoke, who were unbelievably fucking eloquent. I mean unbelievably eloquent i couldn't imagine that they I couldn't believe that they're some of them are t- fucking 12 years old um the granddaughter of martin luther king jr was there she was adorable and also very smart um so apart from the speakers who i thought did just an incredible job the best part for me was the fact that every the entire city was taken over by it so people were marching through the streets well past the time when the march was supposed to have ended. And they were going off route and just all over the city with their signs. And it was just like, it was like nothing happened that day except for that march. And it was really heartening to see. Um, And the signs were hysterical. My favorite one that I cracked up for like 30 minutes about this, just because it's whatever. It's just like my, my sense of humor. My favorite sign was, um, these militias don't look very well regulated. <laughs> oh, God. I love it because no one ever pays attention to the first half of the Second Amendment. It's like, <laughs> well, no, because if they pay attention to that part of it, then their entire argument unravels. Right. Um, I liked your sign. Oh, did you? So my, I we had a few signs. So one of my signs just said, um, we are the change we seek which is a direct stolen quote from Barack Obama. Um, the other side of it, God, what did the other side of it say? 
Um, sorry. Oh, sorry about this, NRA. Sending my thoughts and prayers. Um, and then my boyfriend had a sign that said, the only thing easier to buy than a gun is a Republican. Um, that was pretty brutal. Um, one other sign to throw out there, I saw there was a young person. She was clearly maybe 12 or 13 years old. And she was in the crowd and she held up this giant sign that said, surviving middle school should be metaphorical. Yeah. The the number of, I mean, of course, teenagers, uh, there were so many of them. I saw on multiple occasions, teenagers spotting their teachers at the march and rushing up to them and exchanging hugs. I also saw so many school age children, like kids who are in the single digits. And a couple of them were wearing t-shirts that had um, basically uh, images on them showing the actual size of an AR-15 bullet wound Ooh. as it would be on their bodies. And there were so many points throughout this where I just like, I got choked up because I'm like, these kids are taking to the streets and begging us not to shoot them. Yeah, I got choked up just looking at the, um, like, just following it on Twitter. And uh, it was just mm-hmm. so moving to see um, so many students taking part in this, because I think that, like, unfortunately, you know, a lot of people that are adults in America and around the world, they don't take children seriously. And when there was the the, the school walkout happened. I know a couple of people were saying like, oh, well, don't you remember when you were in school, you would just like walk out because that's like last time in class. And I don't personally agree with that. But to see so many students taking time out of their Saturdays, like stepping away from all of these things we assume that they do, like uh, play video games or like glue themselves to Snapchat, Instagram and stuff like that to actually like go outside and take part. And, um, and everybody that was like interviewed on like local news stations too, so like eloquent you know, from like the youngest kids to, you know, the kids that are a little bit older. Uh, it's really inspiring. Yeah, you yes. know, I think part of the reason that some Republicans hate this so much and, and are calling some of these kids actors is because they can't believe that kids are able to, um, they're more eloquent than many of their elders, including Donald Trump. Th- these people, these kids are just, they're showing really good work. Yeah, I have to say, I have participated in more political demonstrations than I can count since I was like 15 years old. This was by far the most organized one that I have ever participated in. Yeah, I agree. And I was like, wow. Like, I mean, I have all the love in the world for the Women's March, but that shit was kind of, at least here, it was kind of a shit show. (laughs) And like... It, it was just, this was seamless. It was so beautifully done. Everyone who spoke was incredibly poised. And we're talking 12 and 13 year olds. We had here in Atlanta, a couple of Parkland survivors who got up and addressed the crowd. One of them was 14. And he opened up his statement by introducing himself, saying his name, and then saying, I am not a crisis actor. Wow. And yeah. I was like, Jesus fucking Christ. Like, I think back to myself at age 14, and I know that I would not have had the poise or the maturity to be able to stand up and do what these kids did. Um, And unfortunately, there has been 
a pretty disgusting yet predictable response from the NRA and from NRA supporters. Um, just to give a taste of what that looked like, um, NRA has a TV channel apparently called NRA TV. I only learned this recently. Um, but one of the statements from one of their hosts said, to all the kids from Parkland getting ready to use your First Amendment right to attack everyone else's Second Amendment right at your march on Saturday, I wish a hero like Blaine Gatskill had been at Marjorie Douglas High School last month because your classmates would still be alive and no one would know your names because the media would have completely and utterly ignored your story the way they ignored his. I have to ask, what are you really marching for? Because from where I'm standing, it looks like a march to burn the Constitution and rewrite the parts they don't like in crayon. Oh, fuck you. Yeah, obviously feeling so insecure about what's going on. I mean, this might be one of the biggest efforts yet to uh, get some good gun control going on in this country. Well, and it's been successful, too. Yeah, they have already changed gun laws in the state of Florida. Rick Scott who has been avoiding doing anything to flout the NRA during his entire term, signed that bill into place shortly after uh, the Parkland shooting. Yeah. So they are actually making substantive impact. And this was something that I wanted to address here because I feel like I have encountered in my personal life a number of people who don't actually understand that this movement has initiatives. They have substantive, manageable goals that they're working towards. It's not just a movement that says ban all guns. That's not what this is. So I wanted to highlight some of um, what is in their mission statement on their website. So the three main things are they're looking to pass a law to ban the sale of assault rifles, like the ones used in Parkland, Las Vegas, Orlando, Aurora, Sandy Hook, etc., Um, They're also looking to have a law passed prohibiting the sale of high capacity magazines like the ones used in the Parkland shooting. They also want to close the current loopholes in our background check laws that have allowed the perpetrators of mass shootings to obtain assault rifles legally. These are very clear plans that they have in place. And I feel like I have encountered so many people on both sides of the argument, actually, who think that this movement is just about getting rid of the guns. And that's not what this movement is. It's really fucking bizarre how they're always about, oh, they want to take our guns. They want to take our guns. This isn't difficult. Get rid of the bump stocks. Get rid of the magazines. Background checks. Like, why can't everybody agree on these issues by this point? I, I, I think they do is the funny part. I think that if you look at if you look at nationwide polls that are conducted time and time again, year after year, on what the American public thinks about gun regulations, we are pretty much on the same page. Um, by and large, folks agree that military assault r- weapons should not be in the hands of untrained civilians. Everyone agrees we should close background check loopholes. These are common sense things that the public is on board with. And yet, I think the reason that none of that happens is because the pro-gun lobby is successful in convincing folks that those are not the solutions that we're after. 
they're successful in, in changing the narrative to be about banning all guns. They create this straw man that they can then tear down because otherwise they would, they, everyone would agree with us, us being March for Our Lives supporters. So I think, I think that the NRA and, and the pro gun lobby in general is successful in convincing the public that if we give a little, they're going to take a lot and that there's no middle ground between changing nothing and banning all guns which is a lie. It's a downright lie. I think that you hit the nail on the head because, uh, you know, a lot of people that are naysayers about this is uh, their argument is that's where it starts. First, they take away this one thing. And then before you know it, like all of your rights are taken away, which is not the case. But even if it was like, just in terms of the way we live now, we give up our some of our rights in order to feel safe. But if we're giving those up anyway, and nobody feels safe, then we have a problem. And that's what people don't see or don't want to hear. I just want to mention a couple of other things. Um, briefly, gun control updates. Um, the superintendent of the Blue Mountain High School, Di- Blue Mountain School District in Pennsylvania has told lawmakers in Harrisburg that his students protect themselves by having a five-gallon bucket of Riverstone rocks in each classroom. And he said, if an armed intruder attempts to gain entrance into any of our classrooms, they will face a classroom full of students armed with rocks and they will be stoned. So that is one asinine solution to uh, preventing people from entering a school and trying to shoot it up. You will get hit by rocks, sir. Look out. Yeah, did y'all hear about what Rick Santorum said? Oh, my God. Oh, my Uh, God. Pray the guns away? No. So he said that rather than lobbying for gun control measures, students should be taught how to perform CPR. Hmm, Presumably so they can keep their wounded classmates alive long enough for the first responders to get to them. Um, How CPR would help when you've been, you know, shot in maybe the head or somewhere else equally uh, deadly. I'm not sure how that helps. Hmm. I think he's just trying to be relevant for a potential run in 2020. I don't, I, I take issue with the very premise of that response, which is in effect, I have no interest in preventing these in the first place. Yeah. If his, if his response to these students is, hey, don't bother marching or trying to enact change. Instead, go learn CPR. What you are in effect saying is accept the status quo. Accept the possibility that you will be shot and killed in school. That mm-hmm. is just the price that we pay for, for freedom in this country. That's what he's saying. It's, he, and that, that's what I take issue with. Is that if you're going to be, listen, if, you, if you're going to be pro-gun and anti-gun control, okay. But you still have to come to the table with viable solutions for how we stop this. So if you think that it's possible to be anti-gun control and still stop these mass shootings and shootings that are happening all across the country every single day, then prove it. What's your solution? What do you have to offer? 
But if, and if you can't think of anything, then shut your mouth. But don't tell kids that they should just accept the status quo and learn CPR because that is in effect saying, yeah, just accept the fact that you and your friends are going to die. Yeah, I mean, it seems like they're trying to position school shootings as some sort of natural disaster akin to like a tornado that, well, you know, they just happen. We just have to be prepared. Yeah. And then another stupid story to come out of all this is that beginning this week, the students of Stoneman Douglas, where this latest shooting took place, they're returning from spring break and now having to wear clear backpacks which are provided by the school. So this obviously is a safety measure. Uh, The thinking is that if you can see what's inside each kid's backpack, you know they're not going to be bringing a gun into school. But I just... So, like, A, when in the history of ever has (laughs) two major school... Two school shootings taking place at the same school? That's A. But B, there's major privacy concerns here. These poor kids may, be, may need to bring in medical devices. The girls may need to bring in tampons. The guys may need to bring in something else that wouldn't be accepted, uh, like tampons might not be. And they can't hide it. Yeah, I and just, pri- yeah, and privacy is also a constantly or constitutionally protected um, thing as well, so... And, you know, not which isn't to say that I think that clear backpacks are inherently unconstitutional. That's not my argument. Just that I find it a little ironic that that's not even part of the conversation. Yeah. I, I just, it, it feels like an extra kick when these students are already down. I personally, I think I would rather have metal detectors at the school than having to walk around with a clear backpack. But, you know, like, the saddest thing is, is, like, that's in an affluent community. And, like, having grown up in a very affluent community myself, like, I can't imagine these precautions taking place at my old high school. So it's, it's like, mm-hmm. I don't know. that That's kind of like the harsh reality that a lot of kids in, in poverty-stricken neighborhoods have to take, where there's a lot of gun violence and, you know, they fight for their lives every day, obviously. But it's just kind of crazy that it's getting to a point where that could potentially be the norm if we don't pass sensible gun laws. Yeah. Yeah, to Pam's point, I think the reason that Parkland is hitting home for so many people and getting so much attention is because this is one of the first times in recent history, at least, that a particularly affluent area was struck where the kids were old enough to actually speak out for themselves. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's a, that's a fucked up thing, too, because as many people have pointed out, uh, people of color, teenagers of color, have been pointing out these problems for a very long time now and have not gotten near the media attention that the Parkland teens have. As a matter of fact, some of the Parkland survivors have taken it upon themselves to call out their own privilege and be like, yeah, the media is ignoring our friends of color. And I think, Elisa, you mentioned how many young people had turned out in the D.C. area. I think these kids that they're seeing on television are just, they can really relate to them. Um, I have younger cousins, one who is, at least one who is in high school. I might have two that are in high school right now. And they're slightly politically minded. They obviously have a lot to learn about the world still. But 
with with Trump constantly dominating the headlines, you can't help but pay attention to the politics. And then you see these kids who are your age getting political and talking about an issue that could that could affect you in your own school where you used to feel safe. These kids, a lot of them, they don't grow up hunting. They don't grow up thinking that guns are life. So they're like, yeah, why the fuck are there guns in schools? Or why the fuck is it so easy to get a gun? Uh, I, sh- I shouldn't have to worry about the weird kid across the hall one day bringing a gun into school. So I, I think I just think these teens are extremely relatable. And as we've spoken about, they're very well spoken. So um, they're able to make an impact. And we'll see what happens next. But happening next on this show is Surprise Bitch. We're going to call Layla. She said currently she lives currently in Washington, D.C., but that was a year ago. So I wonder where she is now. Hello. Layla. Yeah. Hey, it's Millennial. Surprise, bitch. Surprise. Oh <laughs> What's up? Hello. Nothing much. Where, where are you? Are you still in D.C.? I am currently living in D.C., but I miss the South so much. You miss what so much? The South. Oh. I'm from Atlanta originally. Oh. What are you, what are you doing up in D.C.? Can, can you speak to it? Yeah, I can. I am pursuing a graduate study in health policy, and I'm working at the American Cancer Society. Oh, you're doing That's important awesome. stuff. That is Good awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Did you go to the March for Our Lives rally in D.C. over the weekend? I did. I did. I was over by the Trump Tower, so there were some middle fingers being thrown around, and it was a lot of fun. (laughs) Elisa, where were you? Were you you anywhere near the Trump Tower? Not really. I was sort of stuck in, like, gallery place area. Oh, I see. Yeah. That's so... We got off that Metro Center. Yeah. Yeah. I heard that there were counter-protesters in that area. Is that what you're saying? That there were counter-protesters there? Yeah, so there were, I want to say, right by the Trump Tower and by DOJ, there was a group of counter-protesters that had, like, the Don't Tread on Me flag. uh, And they had a lot of signs saying, like, my rights outweigh your feelings and all that stuff. Oh, my Um, God. And... (laughs) But those were the, there was about like maybe 10 of them, but it was great because the people who were there for the, like for the rally and the march were holding their signs up in front of them and kind of blocking them from view. Um, so it was a fun thing to watch because um, these guys were getting really riled up by like people holding their signs in front of them. There was like some oh. immature trying to hold your sign in front of each other person thing, but the police were all over watching them. But it was a, it was a good show. That's incredible. But that was all I saw. Did you have a sign? Did you bring a sign? My sign said, my life is greater than your gun. But my friend had a sign that said, the only thing, the only, hold on. It was like, the only thing easier to buy than a gun is a Republican senator. (laughs) Oh, Um, yeah, that's, yeah. My boyfriend had something very similar to that. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of those, but those are so funny. Yeah. There are some great signs this time around. Mm. I Um, have to say... The left is so damn creative. Do we ever see creativity 
on the right. And I don't just mean at protests. I mean in the media, you know, television shows, movies. I feel like all the creativity is 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 amongst the liberals. The college really? educated. That's where the memes come from. <laughs> So, yeah. Yeah. Anytime I, I see conservative memes, I just throw up in my mouth a little bit because they're so bad. <laughs> they're like they have yellow font on like really light background. Mm-hmm. Comic yep. fans usually. <laughs> but like, where are the? They're not well done. Where Where are the Bill Mars on the right? Where are the the sitcoms on the right? It's just like every damn thing. Where Where are the big name artists, musicians on the right? There's there are some Kid Rock. Yeah, yeah, but it. he's not good. You know what I mean? Like where are where are the good people on the right? <laughs> Talented. I think your liberal bias you. is showing, Andrew. Is it? No, I genuinely believe that the people on the left are just more creative. There there's something in our brains that's different. No offense to any righties out there, but you mean like our one Republican listener? Yeah, I know. She just tuned out. That's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking of. Uh, what What do you miss about the South, South, Layla? And I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. You are. You are. Um, the food in Atlanta is just so much better than D.C. food. Mm. Um, and like Mexican food, particularly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's just nothing here. Unless you know any, Elisa. I've yet to find a good restaurant out here Uh, mexican is tough to find i feel like i mean good mexican is yeah well especially in this trump era they all left dc they don't want to be anywhere near dc this is honestly that's why i was a hillary fan i wanted to taco truck on every corner (laughs) (laughs) yeah Uh, there is a taco truck near me which is pretty good but Oh. Yeah, everything in Atlanta is good. Like La Fonda, I miss that place so much. It's like a Cuban Mexican restaurant. Yeah. You know what I love uh, food-wise from Atlanta? It is Chick-fil-A. And I'm actually going to Atlanta in a couple weeks. Might see Laura. Not sure. Uh, But I want to go to the original Chick-fil-A, which is called the Dwarf House. Have you been to the Dwarf House? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they have two, I think. There was one. So I'm originally from outside of Atlanta. And there's one like off of 92 in the suburb, in the suburbs up in like Marietta Woodstock area. They have a dwarf house there, but I don't know who the original one is. Okay, um, not sure. I, I need to go to the original. I need to go where it all started, where all that gay hate started. Take me. There. I think they also have like their corporate office. I think you can go into. <gasps> I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. <sighs> you can. Oh, yeah, they have a gift shop. Yeah. Oh. They have, like, True of Kathy's books and like notebooks of Chick Fil A on them. Oh my god, I want it all. I want and it. And I'm all. pretty sure that Chick Fil A is also affiliated with, like, it has its own restaurant that serves stuff apart from the typical Chick Fil A menu. I think that's I met the somebody at the corporate office. Is that it? Maybe I don't know. I don't know I, but I, 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 re- I went there once on a field trip, I think, and they mm-hmm. definitely have like a cafeteria with more than just like chicken sandwich and chicken nuggets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there I might knew somebody be, like, who worked there once who said that they make like a Chick-fil-A pizza. Oh, my God. I'm <laughs> oh, hard. my God. It's like, that sounds amazing. <laughs> the Chick-fil-A sauce, that's a sauce. <laughs> Laura, I'm, I'm so hungry. This sounds great. 
<laughs> Laura, I'm going to be in town Thursday, April 5th. So clear your calendar or don't. <laughs> we'll see. I might I might be very busy. <laughs> oh. Okay. oh, man. Uh, we, we had an awkward riff about this earlier in the episode. You can listen later, Layla. <laughs> it wasn't awkward. Will do. Will do. <laughs> it was honest. Yeah. It's just, well, the point I was getting at earlier in the episode is when you grow up, you just don't see people as often anymore. You're busy. You got stuff to do. I, I was kind of fucking with Laura, but like like in LA, I barely hung out with anybody any, anymore except for the same like four or five people. I just can't be bothered to make an effort to hang out with people. because you live too far away, dude. No. Like, no. That's the thing. In LA, if anywhere there's traffic, you don't want to go like five miles in any direction or more than that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So I was just listening to Mugglecraft and Micah so that you ditched him in New York. So I guess... That- Perfect example. I was in New York last week. Did I call up Micah? No. I can't be bothered to hang out with people. I was there with Richard. I couldn't go. It's a whole thing. You got to, okay, when do you want to meet? Where are we going to go? How long are we going to stay there? As soon as I'm there, I'm like, all right, when can I leave? It's too much. Yep. Yep. Thank you. That's a perfect example. I straight up ignored Micah. I lived in New York. Yeah, I heard. I lived in New York for a couple of years, and I I can count on one hand the number of times I saw Micah while I lived there. Hmm. Now I'm thinking it's just a problem with Micah. <laughs> oh, it's definitely a problem with Micah because that fucker will come down to Maryland and not tell me ever, fucking ever. And I find out. I find out about it way later. And he's like, oh, yeah, by the way, I was, like, in your neck of the woods, like, three days ago. Like, well, thanks for telling me that now, Micah. (laughs) Just sits in his fucking chair all day. Doesn't call anybody. Oh, God. Yeah. See, I do that, though. I'm a ghoster. I'll, like, not post anything on social media until after I've left the area. Oh, my God, yeah, that reminds me of something else. So I posted about seeing Bruce the other night. Uh, you know, I, 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 I said how much I love the show. Within seconds, somebody just replies to it, you're in NYC. What are you up to tomorrow? I didn't post this to invite you to try and hang out with me. I posted it to share that I love Bruce. I, if I wanted to hang out with you, I would have let you know. I hate when people say, you're in this city? Let's hang out. <laughs> Fuck you. I didn't come clean about where I am so I can hang out with you. You're literally the embodiment of, I can't help it that I'm so popular right now. No, that's not what I'm saying. It was somebody that I knew. I didn't want to hang out with them. (laughs) I just, I don't, I don't you, like Layla's saying, like, sometimes you got to keep things private. Otherwise, they're going to, people are just going to come for you. And I don't want people coming for me. (sighs) Ah. Anyway, Sorry, brought all this up. Yeah, no, it's all right. I, I've come off like a total asshole here, too. Thank you, Layla, for your support. Uh, and good on you for going out to one of these rallies over the weekend. And uh, have a good yeah. night. Yeah, you too. Great listening and talking to you guys. Awesome. Thank you. Bye. Come back to Atlanta and work Bye. for the CDC. <laughs> oh, I did actually work for them for a couple of years. Oh, damn. This girl's done it yeah. all. I know. All right. Talk to you later. Layla. Bye. Bye. She was sweet. 
I, yeah, see, we need to get more Atlanta people on the show. She was great. She was like the best of both worlds for you two. Living mm-hmm. living in DC area. She she is been she is doing what I've been trying to convince Laura to do forever, which is to move up here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I did for four years. Yeah. It's your turn. Uh, she yeah. uh, similarly, <laughs> she has been doing what I've been telling Laura to do which is go to the chick-fil-a jorf house <laughs> maybe we can go eat there andrew that can be our compromise <laughs> yeah, our middle ground that's fine that's fine but we're gonna have to figure out a time we're gonna how long are we staying together what are we doing after uh, yeah i know i know uh, thank you everybody for listening despite my complaining it's been fun <laughs> uh on what are we doing on after dark today laura you planned a good one Yes, yeah, so we're going to be talking about partisan disconnect. So basically, uh, some of the common topics that people from both sides of the political spectrum are sort of willing to move their goalposts on in in uh, in favor of political expediency. So we're going to talk about things that people are willing to compromise their values on and why we think they're okay with moving the goalposts on those particular topics. Yeah, that's that's going to be fun. You're going to be able to hear that over at patreon.com slash millennial. Thanks to everybody who has been listening live, including Catherine, JY, Matt, Yeshi, Katie, Victor, Maeve, Julie, who's listening for her first time today. They're all getting early access to the episode over at patreon.com slash millennial by tuning in to the live stream bunch of other benefits over there as well after dark hashing it out access to our show doc so you can see what we're planning for the week ahead a physical gift every year associate producer status which lets you chime in on what we're talking about on certain episodes and of course surprise bitch you're a millennial pam thanks for joining us it was nice having you back on thanks for having me it's fun. How much longer are you in in LA for? Um, I haven't decided yet, but I I'm trying to leave like tomorrow or Wednesday. It's absence mm. makes the heart grow fonder. Oh yes, yes. LA is your long distance lover, isn't it's she? My dirty mistress. And and your friend Michelle. <laughs> I mean, you two, Laura and Elisa. That that's a that's a that's a friendship. But Pamela and Michelle, that's a friendship too. Also long distance. We're the West lesser west coast version nah. <laughs> i wouldn't say lesser it's just we're east side west side <laughs> it's like talk and biggie status there yeah. we go yeah exactly <laughs> thank you everybody for listening i'm andrew i'm Elisa. i'm laura and i'm pamela see everybody next time goodbye bye bye